If you brought your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Daniel. And we're going to dive right in. We're going to dive right in. So follow along on the screen with me. In Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. How many of you are familiar with the story of Daniel? Anybody know Daniel? Um, sure, maybe you know about lion's den and fiery furnaces, uh, three friends, but the truth is, for those of you, even as I mentioned it today, I said, hey, we're starting a new teaching series on Daniel. Some of you thought, okay, yeah, fiery furnace, got it, yeah, mm-hmm. And then some of you that really know Daniel said, oh, man, I am so sorry. Because Daniel is an incredibly intimidating book. Uh, all right, so I don't know if you can wrap your mind around this, but the, the scene and the action of Daniel takes place more than two and a half millennia ago. More than two thousand years ago is the setting, right? Uh, and, and to make things even more complicated, Daniel is actually written in two different languages. The first chapter is in Hebrew. The middle section is all in Aramaic. And then it ends in Hebrew again. There are billions of questions about the dating and the culture and uh, the authorship of Daniel. Everything is debated. Uh, to make things even more interesting, Daniel is filled with stories about kings and harems and eunuchs and pagan rituals, drunken orgies, night terrors, beheadings, assassinations, winged angels, and yes, monsters. Who's ready for Daniel? Daniel is more like Arabian Nights or like a Game of Thrones of the Old Testament without all the nakedness. All right, like that's, like that's where we're going. Uh, more than half of Daniel is dreams and visions and apocalypses. Daniel may be the most intimidating book of the Old Testament, but if you aren't too afraid, it may also be the funnest. So my question is, are you with me? All right. We're going, even if you're not, but like, we're going. And I just read the first two verses, and what you see is Daniel begins at the end. The story of Daniel begins at the end of another story. And it's hard for us to imagine on Memorial Day weekend where we're thinking about sailboats and vacations and beach trips. But Daniel is really a book for the oppressed. And that's right where it begins. Uh, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? What's the worst thing that could happen to God's people? What's the worst thing that could happen to the city of Jerusalem? It's happened. Honestly, what happens in these first two verses is worse than the Holocaust for the Jews. It is. It's far worse. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who I will never preach on, just get ready, that's not going to happen. Jeremiah is filled with terrible prophecies about Jerusalem. And it's, these are terrible prophecies about what could happen if people turn their back on God. And everybody looks at Jeremiah and goes, man, that crazy old guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about until it happens. Jeremiah is right all along, and he wasn't crazy after all. 
God's people have turned from him and now the unthinkable has happened. A foreign superpower has come in and sacked the city. In Leviticus, it says, if you do not listen to me or obey my commands, I will turn against you. And that is exactly what has happened. God has turned against, or they've abandoned him either way, has turned against his own people. And like you think like, oh, well, how bad can it be? Like, Jerusalem was known as the perfection of beauty, the city, the joy of the whole world. Like it is this amazing city and now it has been completely besieged. There's a season where the surrounding army just camps out around it and they starve the people of Jerusalem to death. There are stories of moms boiling their own children to eat them. It's bad, folks. It's incredibly bad. And in the first two verses, you see that the temple of God, all right, so that, you know, that painting and in the ceiling where God's finger and Adam's finger are like this, like that's supposed to be the temple in the Old Testament where heaven and earth meet. And yet in the first two verses, you find out that a pagan foreign king has besieged this city and plundered God's temple. He's come in and he's taken God's stuff. And by all appearances, in the very first verse, this is exactly what you're supposed to see, by all appearances, the God of Jerusalem has been defeated. In the first two verses, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph has been defeated by the gods of Babylon. And it looks like maybe God is not in control anymore. Let's keep reading. Look what it says in the next few verses. Verse three through seven, it says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz. All right, so when you come to a name, you don't know how to say it. Just be bold and act like you got this 100. So I'm gonna do that all through, right? You're gonna go, that isn't how that sounds. I don't care. We're just gonna, mm, we're going right through. So then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are all well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Here's the part you're more familiar with. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called, you already know what it is? Abednego. You see, the Babylonians haven't just robbed the temple, they've plundered the people of God too. They haven't just taken items out of God's temple, they've actually like the best of the best that Judah has to offer, the best people, the brightest minds, the handsomest, they've all brought them, they've taken them from Jerusalem to the city of Babylon. Why? 
this is actually like an incredibly clever plan. Like the king of Babylon could have just killed them all, right? But if you kill people, then like, I, I mean, then they get kind of upset at you. You know, there might be some bad blood. You know, you, maybe you would even make them martyrs and then somewhere down the line, somebody, somebody's gonna want revenge. And so the king of Babylon does something incredibly clever and, and also pretty sinister. Instead of killing the best and brightest Judah has to offer, he adopts them. You see that. And the truth is that uh, uh, Babylon at this time is really not so bad. Ever hear of the hanging gardens of Babylon? All right, so imagine a building the size of a mountain covered with terrace gardens of every shape and kind and variety you could ever imagine. It's the size of a mountain. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually built this for one of his wives who wanted to see the foliage, right? It's an incredible marvel of the ancient world. The palace that he builds for this wife that's right next to the hanging gardens of Babylon is called the marvel of mankind. At this point in time, like Babylon is the most prosperous and affluent superpower the world has seen, up to this point probably. And King Nebuchadnezzar's plan is to change the next generation of Judah, the next generation of God's people, the next leaders of Judah into the best Babylonians. The idea is to undermine God and cause the people of Judah to forget who they are. So insidious that he even changes their names. Did you see that? It's a full attack on their identity. The names in, in the Bible, of course, have meaning. Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel protects his life. A Babylonian God is now your name, right? And it's the same for Hananiah and, and Mishael and Azariah. It's the same. They, they had names of God, and now they're giving names of Babylonian gods, The name of Nebuchadnezzar's game is compromise. Sometimes, all right, so, so maybe you don't identify with kings and harems and all this kind of stuff, but when I say compromise, all of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Sometimes the world tries to hinder our obedience and tempt us to make just, just small changes, just small compromises to our values. What are the odds that someone in this room right now is facing some pressure, some temptation to compromise? Let's just do it. Let's, let's do it. Give me a raise of hands if you've ever been tempted to compromise your beliefs or your values or your identity. Anybody? You ever been tempted? Ever been tempted to compromise? Your boss ever ask you to do something immoral or unethical? Uh, I, I don't live in the business world, but, but I've got lots of friends who are in the business world or work in the business world, and, and I see this pressure to compromise a lot. Some of you are going to college soon. There's going to be pressure there. 
Uh, I've had friends in the business world that, that uh, at the Coke machine, like in the, in the snack area of the corporate office, they took all the Cokes out and put beer in it, right? Uh, I'm not giving suggestions, by the way. Um, had another friend, he was, uh, he was deeply involved in sales and had clients, and part of his role was to just take care of his clients that bought products for him and all of this. And it was a norm of, of their business and of their culture to take clients to the strip club. That's what they wanted. So that's where you took them. And he said, well, how do I do this? And I said, well, don't do it, right? But if I don't do it, what's going to happen? Is there any good way to get out of that situation, right? If I don't do it, they're not going to buy my products. I'm going to lose them as clients, and then my boss is going to find out, and I'm going to get fired. We may not know about in anything about Babylonia 2,500 years ago, but compromise is something we are very familiar with. And King Nebuchadnezzar is after Daniel and his friends to compromise their beliefs, to compromise their values, to compromise even their identity. Let's read a little bit more together. Verse 8 through 14. But Daniel, who's now Belteshazzar, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, uh, I'm, I don't know about this plan. I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me. What's that word? I love Daniel. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had him appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he says, why don't you test us? Just test us. Test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. And Daniel said, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. And the attendant agreed, even under threat of his own life, right? If he gets this wrong, he could be killed. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. Why not eat the food from the king's table? I heard somebody answer. It was unacceptable. That is maybe the best theological answer I've heard. Like there, there are books and chapters written on this question of, well, he was a Jew, the king was serving pork chops, this was not an okay, you know, like um, there, there are lots of, there's lots of like digging into this, like maybe the food that the Babylonian king was serving was actually like, like temple food that this food had already been consecrated to the gods of Babylon and, and Daniel and his friends don't want to eat food that's been given to another God, but what did, they didn't consecrate the water and the vegetables. So, no, that didn't seem right either. But I, I, I think you're, what you said was right. Like, um, what's happening here is the continual attack on their identity. Where does your life really come from? 
What is your source of provision? Um, and what Daniel does, and maybe it seems like a small thing, because let's face it, the Babylonian table probably looked pretty good. Right, like it looked like good stuff on there. But what Daniel and his friends do is draw a line in the sand. And this magnificent refusal sets the stage. Like everything else that happens in Daniel hinges off of this moment. It's the climax of our story. Because food that is fit for a king was not fit for a servant of the king of kings. Daniel's going to stand shoulder to shoulder with the kings throughout the whole rest of, rest of this book. Yet he is time and again going to choose holiness and purity. There's a challenge for us in that, I think. To consider again the world in which we live and recognize there are points at which we have to draw the line. Uh, and, and there's really power in that. If you've ever been in that situation where you've said, hey, this is as far as I'm willing to go, there's, there's really an important identity in that too. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like there are, all of a sudden there comes, there's, there's no strength in just going along and doing what everybody else does. But when you say, hey, this is really it for me, there is strength in that. And Daniel is saying, maybe even subtly, that our citizenship is first and foremost of heaven. There's this old hymn that we used to sing, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, right? Jesus talks about being in the world, but not of it. Even the word holy, it, it's... My favorite definition of the word holy is alien. Right? Sometimes we think sacred or you know, consecrated, something like that. But, but holiness, being holy is really being, you know, sometimes we say set apart, but it really means alien. It means something completely different. Like, it means like not from around here, right? And when people look at you, they recognize, he's not from around here. Gary's from up north, Jersey, right? And he preached, and he's not from around here, Right? And Daniel is, is wanting to draw that up in us again. In verse 8, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it's a really important verse. The New Living Translation says, Daniel was determined not to defile himself. And man, I love the NLT, but they miss it completely. A much better translation is, Daniel purposed in his heart. Does that communicate something to you? Like Daniel made a choice. Daniel drew a line in the sand, but, but there was something welling up in Daniel from his very heart that said, you know, I'm, I'm just not going there. And I, I think that's a great lesson for us today is, is, is maybe just resolve today in your heart to follow God's plan, to obediently remember him, Right? Maybe ask yourself, what actually is purposed in my heart? And maybe like Daniel, I invite you to join 
the resistance. I'm not going to read the rest of chapter 1. I'll let you read along. But what happens is astonishing and amazing. Uh, Daniel and his friends are going to eat vegetables and water, right? Have you ever heard this kind of, you are what you eat? Uh, You know, that was the challenge. But but Daniel and his friends, they actually show up 10 times better than all of the competitors. They show up 10 times more wise and knowledgeable and skilled, better than even the king's own magicians and enchanters and counselors. Daniel and his friend, because they drew a line in themselves, identify themselves as something different and God lifts them up in the middle of a Babylonian kingdom. It's pretty amazing. You see, uh, if anything, Daniel is a hero story. All right, so uh, do any of you like guy movies? I hope so. I'm the only one. Awesome. All right, so let, let me show you a picture. Tell me who this is. Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal. Do any of you know who Steven Seagal is? Okay, good. Very holy guy. This is, fits perfectly with Daniel. I know that's the first thing you thought about when you thought about Daniel. Um, Steven Seagal is an action, or was, an action movie figure, right? Steven Seagal could take on 100 ninjas. Steven Seagal could win every fight. He can shoot straight. He can do everything that an action figure should do in a movie. But if you've ever seen a Steven Seagal movie, there is, there is something that stands out about Steven Seagal that, that is so completely different from every other action hero. And what is different is that no one ever touches Steven Seagal. Let me give you an example. I'll show that next picture. This is Bruce Willis. You guys know who Bruce Willis is? Man, gosh. Okay. Bruce Willis, another action figure guy. Bruce Willis, same, same genre, right? He's the hero. He's going to win the fight. Except everybody hits Bruce Willis, Right? Bruce Willis takes damage. Bruce Willis, in, like he's going to win just like Steven Seagal does, but Bruce Willis is going to get stabbed, shot 16 times. They're going to step on his toes. He runs across, barefoot across a floor of glass at one point. Like look at the pictures. He is beaten and bloodied. He takes damage. Now show those pictures of Steven Seagal again. This is him in the movie. Steven Seagal fights 100 ninjas and not one of them touch him. Not one. He doesn't have a drop of sweat. He doesn't have a misplaced hair. Steven Seagal is untouchable. Are you with me? Steven Seagal is Daniel. Daniel is going to face unbelievable odds, right? He's going to face kings. He's going to face a whole pride of lions. And what's he going to come out with? Not even a scratch. So Daniel is a hero story. No matter what Babylon throws at Daniel and his friends, they always come out unscathed and on top. They eat their broccoli and come out 10 times better than the competition. And you're supposed to go, well, this isn't real life. How is this possible? I've just got a few more minutes. How is it possible that Daniel and his friends come through this thing completely 
unscathed. And it's because the Bible overwhelmingly, like the whole thing, the Bible overwhelmingly is about the activity of God. And Daniel is all about the activity of God. If you were looking carefully, you already saw some, some moments. God is working behind the scenes. God is working when you least expect it. And the activity of God is a question for us as much today as it was 2,500 years ago, right? How many of you are curious about how God works? How many of you are curious about when God works? How many of you are curious about why God works? How many of you are curious about, it seems like sometimes God works, but sometimes it seems like he doesn't work. Curious about this? Daniel is all about the activity of God. And what you'll see time and time again is in the worst case scenario imaginable. Remember how bad it was, right? It's the worst of the worst. You can't get worse than this. In the worst case scenario, God is constant. He shows up again and again. And it's, he seems to remind us that he hasn't lost sight of us, even when we lose sight of him. And I think this idea is illustrated perfectly in one of Daniel's friends' original name. All right, so you remember, Daniel had three friends, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right? And you know that Azariah receives a new name. Azariah's new name is? So I had this great uh, friend who, uh, I, I used to go to a black church, and I had this great worship leader at the black church. His name was Jerome Williams, and he loved to teach on this story. He loved to teach on Daniel and his three friends, except for he gave them a l slightly different name. He didn't call him uh, a bendigo. He called him a bad Negro, and that's totally true. <laughs> and that stuck with me, so that's going to come out again more and more in this story. But remember, I told you that that the the Judah name that they had was a God name and then they received a Babylonian name and that was a Babylonian God name. But the name Azariah, if you're looking for a kid name, Azariah is a perfect name because Azariah means the Lord helps. The Lord helps. And in that name, you find the full sentiment of Daniel. If you can remember those three words, you'll get it. When it comes to the activity of God, these are three words I want you to remember. Now, Daniel's not going to answer all of your questions about God's activity. <laughs> about, well, why did God work here? And where, where was he when this happened? Like, He's going to raise a lot of questions and, and answer few. In some ways, he's going to raise more questions. But what becomes abundantly clear is that as Azariah's name suggests, the Lord helps. Say those three words. The Lord helps. Say them again. The Lord helps. Why don't we do this? We've just got a, a minute or two left, but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say some questions, maybe, maybe make a few statements. And after each one, I'm just going to pause, and I want you to say these three words again. Can you do that? Can we do that for a few minutes? Just for a few moments. So I'm going to say something, and then you're going to say the same thing again. Maybe you don't even know what that means or what you believe yet, but just, just go with me, okay? 
So I'm going to make a statement, and you're going to say the Lord helps. Everybody understand? All right, help your neighbor if they get lost. In times of difficulty, when I feel alone, or when the situation seems hopeless, when I'm afraid, when I'm hurting, when the odds seem impossible, this is one's a little bit longer, when I need to go out on a limb, take a stand, move forward, forgive, evangelize, or sacrifice, when I am tempted to compromise, even when I have failed. I don't know how to stop this now. Okay. Do you believe what you just said? Do you need what you just said? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of communion, and there'll be instructions on the screens. We've got tables set up. The way we do this is we just invite you to stand up and, and go to the tables. It's sacred space for us to remember the, the death of burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And as you take these elements, I invite you to remember these three words. Take to these tables. Respond. Take, take your pain. Take your questions. Take your fears. Take your worries. Take your struggles. I'm worried that we've become so enculturated, that's not a real word, immersed in the gods of this world that we've forgotten not just, just who he is, but maybe we've forgotten who we are. And maybe you have compromised. If, if so, maybe that's you this morning. You're thinking, uh, yep, I ate the food. You're not alone. We have all that, like, the, part of the story of Daniel is no one will ever live up to Daniel. Remember, he's Stephen Seagal. You're more Bruce Willis, right? Maybe you've taken some damage. Maybe you've compromised. At some point in time, we've all come up short. But even that's not who you are. Even that doesn't have to define you. I just encourage you, maybe in this morning as you take communion, to repent and ask for forgiveness. It's, it's granted and given. And I invite you to remember the story of Daniel. I invite you to join the resistance, to take a stand. Maybe ask yourself, in what area of my life right now is God asking me to step out on a limb, to remember him, to trust him? This morning, I want you to take courage to draw the line in the sand. Like Daniel, purpose in your heart to trust God and remember the name Azariah. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and uh, for the example of Daniel. God, how can a word that's like, it's so old, it's for so long ago, but it, it speaks to us right now here in this place. God, it hasn't lost, lost any of its importance or any of its punch. So, Father God, I, I pray where the Spirit is working in hearts right now that, that you would just pour fuel on that, 
Father God, there are men and women in this place that just need to hear those words, the Lord helps. Maybe there's some struggle. Maybe there's, there's some situation where they're being temper, tempted to compromise. Father God, give them strength. Let them find courage from Daniel, but also from each other. Father God, bless us as we enter into this space. Let us lay all of our burdens on you. If we have compromised, God, let us repent and be forgiven and start over again fresh and new. You offer us that new beginning now and here. We love you, Father. Bless us as we respond. Bless us as we commune with you. And your son, Jesus' name, everyone together says,